the sentencing potentially uh, being reduced with Roger Stone. Well, let's bring him on and uh, find out. He is our legal expert. You saw him this week on NBC 10 uh, as part of the story that we're going to talk about, the woman with the knife. And good afternoon to our legal expert, attorney Tim Dodd. Good afternoon, Tim Dodd. Hey, John. Good afternoon to you. Uh, and I'm not trying to catch you off guard, and I don't know the answer because I know this is all just breaking, but these ballot base, uh, story of allegations against uh, a juror bias in the Roger Stone case. This is just all still kind of coming together. I don't know if you've had a chance or heard anything about it as of yet. No, I have not, but okay. if, there's a, if there's a specter of juror bias, which is coming out now, um, the Stone team might be able to move for a mistrial and get a new trial. Wow. Um, the judge might have to call all the jurors back and do um, an independent, each one at a time, voir dire to see if the, the biased juror, if there is a biased juror, did or said things to um, improperly uh, influence how the jury um, came up with its verdict on the counts for which Roger Stone was found guilty. This will create um, a big problem for the trial judge because he'll have to do something about it. He'll have to poll the jurors. He'll have to interview the jurors, see what the jurors heard, what they did, what was said. And um, again, it's, it's, it's the type of thing which results in mistrials. So if we're finding this out after the fact, and it improperly influenced what happened, uh, Stone could well wind up getting a new trial out of this, which I'm sure would be he would be happy to do because he would stay on the street and this thing would grind its way through to um, another trial. And this trial would occur, if, if it occurs, we're speculating, with the backdrop of, since his trial, um, the conclusions of... Um, the investigation as to the Mueller investigation of the original FISA warrants. I mean, this is all in the world of the law, partially what we call, you know, the, the fruits of the poisonous tree. The original um, FISA warrants, the original Mueller investigation were all um, built upon a fraudulent basis. And Stone got caught up tangentially in all of it. Stone's crime was, you know, tweets which he claims one interpretation for, the feds claim another interpretation. Um, he's a bit player, but he's a bombastic player, which I'm sure, you know, had the feds very anxious to get their pound of flesh out of him because he's the kind of guy who would poke the, uh, the feds in the nose at every turn. And, um, he ultimately was convicted. But this could be good news for Stone. Tim, if you could touch on, um, you know, was the real news and it was hitting the night of the New Hampshire primary was the prosecutors in the case seemingly were all stepping away as words started to leak. They were saying that the president interfered with what the sentencing was going to be when apparently the president's even spoken out that um, that he was maybe going to receive over seven years. And, and it's interesting now because... You forget, like, some of the damage and collateral damage left in the wake of the whole Russian investigation, which proved to be nothing. But someone like Roger Stone is still kind of holding the bag because, you know, for various, I don't even know what the charges are, that he was elusive with them or that he didn't tell them the truth or everything, even though there was really nothing there. But what about that business about the uh, sentencing guidelines and then they were all stepping aside? And, and by the way, Mike Flynn's, Mike Flynn still hangs in the breeze waiting to see how this is going to shake out you know, caught up in the same right. bogus Russian investigation. But as specifically to this whole business with what the president tweeted and what Bill Barr did and what the judge is obligated to do, the sentencing judge always has the discretion to do whatever the sentencing judge wishes to do. We've seen that locally with Judge McConnell. He doesn't always follow the recommendations of the prosecution uh, in sentencing high-profile cases. Judges around the country have a certain amount of latitude. There's guidelines, there's benchmarks, there's recommendations, but ultimately it's within the purview of the judge to do what he or she sees fit. Sure. So the president, so the president tweets that he thinks that uh, what the federal prosecutors are looking for is disproportionate. 
um, not commensurate with the type of crime that occurred here, and he provides his opinion. Uh, Bill Barr uh, makes a recommendation to what the prosecutors should do. These prosecutors, in, in, a, in a pick of um, whatever, say, well, we're off the case. We resign from the case. Now, the media reports it that there's these noble guys who have resigned their position. They haven't quit their job with, as U.S. attorneys. Right. They simply said, we're going to get out of this particular this case. This case, that's right. Right. But if you just listen to the media, you'd say, boy, these guys are noble. Right. They are ethical. They've quit their job. They've resigned, they quit their yeah. Job. No, they, no, they just left the case. But, right, but you would never glean that if you just listened to the headlines. You wouldn't know that. Um, did Bill Barr do something for which he should resign? No. Did he do anything unethical? No. Now, again, it's it's a bit of an unforced error on the president's part, only because you know he likes to tweet. Um, the media puts the spin on it, and before you know, Chuck Schumer's calling for an investigation. Um, the president didn't do anything improper. Bill Barr didn't do anything improper or illegal or unethical. Um, it is what it is. And I think that these prosecutors who quote-unquote resigned were overly zealous and were looking to... Um, or recommending, I should say, and arguing for a sentence which was disproportionate with the crime. Yep. I mean, this is something that should be two or three years, not it, eight or nine. Tim, here is um, more details. So the four-person on the jury listen, ran for Congress as a Democrat in 2012, was revealed. She revealed her role in a jury in a Facebook post defending the four prosecutors who quit. Her, her name is uh, Tamika Hart. Her social media activity shows she closely followed the special counsel Russell investigation, frequently posted negative stories, stories about President Trump. When CNN first came out with the fact that she was the first to report her post, but they didn't even report that she was a Democrat. So she was a Democrat 2012. She's the four person on the jury against Roger Stone, a Republican political operative. Tim, I, I would I don't see how this this conviction stays. It won't. If that's all true, I mean, uh, unfortunately, I guess unfortunately, Stone's defense team should have done a better job at yeah, vetting, vetting the jury. jurors and uh, doing a better job with voir dire or hiring a jury expert. I mean, on high-profile cases, if there's enough money to do so, you you start to do some background checking on the potential jurors to, to know more about them that you might learn. Uh, through a simple voir dire in a courtroom, such as looking at their social media, such as, you know, doing whatever you can to find out about them. I mean, this person sounds like they weren't hiding their bias, no. hiding um, anything about their involvement outside of the courtroom and following what was going on. If this, if this jury foreperson was following the case and looking at things outside of the courtroom and outside of the testimony, it's going to be a mistrial, for can sure. Tim Dodd, can you just touch on, because, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on it, but there, there are misconceptions about what a juror can or can't know when they're going to sit on a jury. Um, and it's my understanding, it, it's not as if, like, sometimes a high-profile case, like, they've never heard of the case and it's tough to find people. It's my understanding you just have to find people that either haven't come to a conclusion on it or something in their background uh, would... would somehow hamper them maybe from coming to a fear judgment on it, such as I know that um, I remember there was a case I was sitting in on, on jury selection and this was someone they found out, one of the jurors, that during the Vietnam War, they used to do a lot of uh, anti-government protesting and had a lot of feelings and written about a lot of anti-war and, and anti-government feelings. And I believe at the time, for instance, just as an example, but the U.S. attorney and the FBI felt like that's not someone we want on the jury because they're, by, they've shown in the past they certainly have very strong feelings against the government. So when the government is prosecuting someone, they may not even be aware, but their own actions have shown they would tend to go against the government. Yes, well, during, during the course of selecting a jury, and I don't really know how they do it in uh, Florida, every state is different with the amount of involvement by the attorneys versus the judge in um, asking questions of potential jurors to determine their bias, prejudice, um, or anything else. Um, uh, 
there are challenges that you have for cause. So let's assume um, it's a police officer on trial for allegedly assaulting somebody under arrest. And lo and behold, someone on the jury, a potential juror, happens to be a police officer or a police officer from the same department. You would be able to um, get rid of that person for cause. Hey, hey, judge, this person clearly can't sit. There's, there's just no way. And if the court agrees, then that person gets bounced. Otherwise, uh, both sides have the right to use their discretion to remove jurors from the potential panel. Um, and it's, it's a lot of guesswork and just your, your gut sense as to whether the person um, would be fair or not fair um, depending on their background, their family, their occupation, their previous involvement in litigation. Uh, it's not an exact science as to who you knock off a jury and who you keep on a jury. Um, so let's assume this woman said, yep, I'm a Democrat and I ran for Congress. That's not enough to knock her off the jury. The lawyers and or the court would then have to drill down and say, well, would that make you biased against a Republican operative for President Trump? Oh, no, I can keep an open mind. You know, if, if the person wants to say they could, be un, they could be fair and unbiased and keep an open mind and that the person's political persuasion would not predetermine how they would vote on the case, they might well get to stay on. But if enough was known about this juror to, to be able to say, hey, judge, we got to knock her off for cause. Look at, look at her social media. Um, that might have been done. It simply wasn't. But if it's that beyond the pale, what you're saying, um, it's likely that defense counsel can now move for a mistrial. The judge will do, as I said, a voir dire of all the jurors to see how they were influenced. And I'd say there's a reasonably good chance, based upon what we're just hearing, that uh, there'll be a mistrial and he may um, have his sentencing uh, put off or canceled and await for a new trial. This yeah. seems to be something devastating for the prosecution. Um, folks, good afternoon. It's Sean DePietro. I speak with our legal expert, Attorney Tim Dodd. Tim, we have a number of different stories we really want to get to, but let's start with the Monica Brady, or Monique Brady, excuse me. Um, I mean, I, I know that area where she lives. I don't know her. I know people that know her. And uh, very, very dramatic in the courtroom this week when the sentencing with Judge McConnell. It, it, it's clear that she was a, an extremely good con artist, an extremely good grifter. I mean, she had victims basically on the stand crying, apologizing to her, saying, I'm so sorry I have to be up here testifying against you, Monique. You were my best friend. I mean, I, I think some people would like quite a different result for Monique or send her away for longer. But um, One victim still, visited her at the ACI. It's astonishing. So she is a different sort of con artist. She is a real pro. Um, she got all sorts of people to invest in this uh, fraudulent scam that she was running. Um, she must have been very good at it. She got her lawyer to allegedly be her paramour. He spent an undue amount of time at the ACI visiting her, I guess, under the pretext of being her attorney. I've been out to the AC many a time. I've never spent four hours at a clip uh, talking to a client. Um, obviously, they had a different relationship. She had this guy ready to get on a plane and accompany her to Vietnam. Um, she was very good. Now, Judge McConnell, who has caught some criticism in the media for being too easy in his sentencing of criminals, um, there's been a few uh, high-profile cases recently, he didn't go for the full uh, sentence that the prosecution wanted, but I think he hit her appropriately. Eight years in the federal penitentiary is a long time. In the state system, you might serve half, maybe a little over half of your sentence, and you'd get out for um, good behavior credits and the like. In the federal system, she'll serve about 85% minimum of this sentence. So she's not going to get out anytime soon. Um, and she'll do, you know, um, an unpleasant stretch of time. That's a long time to sit in prison, a long time. 
Um, so I think that he uh, sentenced her very fairly and appropriately. Now, part of the sentence is that she's got to make restitution of about $3.4 million to her victims. You know that's never going to happen. Right. Um, she'll be paying that at 100 bucks a month for the rest of her life and never come close to it, and these folks will never be made whole. That's the unfortunate reality. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really rotten thing that she did to these people. Terrible. And the, the people, they sold their beach house in order to come up with the money for it, and even the person that said, you know, I gave... I'm taking care of a quadriplegic and gave, like, and just, there she is. This was friends. She knew it was their life savings. She knew it was the only money they had. And um, I like how Judge McConnell also said she's addicted to money. It's not, don't give me this, like, she's a victim addicted to gambling. She's addicted to money. There are times when the defendant at the time of sentencing should simply shut up. Yeah. I've seen cases where... You know, defendants will go in and try to give an explanation as to why they stole money, why they sold drugs, why they did whatever. And a lot of times the judge will call them on it saying that, you know, that that's just a ridiculous story that you're making up. When she gets in there and says it's because she's a refugee and all of the background that she had and how she suffered in her life, the judge basically uh, called her on it saying, you know, that's all nonsense. And there are times when the defendant coming up with a story to try to mitigate what they did, if the judge doesn't buy it, it can result in a harsher sentence because the judge can become ticked off that he's, he or she is being um, deceived by the defendant. And in this case, I think she attempted to the bitter end to deceive everyone, including the sentencing judge, and he didn't buy it. Folks, good afternoon. It's John DePietro. This portion of our program is brought to you by K's. Remember, whether it's lunch, dinner, or drinks in the lounge, stop by K's, the waiting few. Tim, we have some other stories we're going to touch on. I, I want to touch on the Harvey Weinstein case only because when this first came about, it got a tremendous amount of attention. And I've, I have been following it. And I've, um, I find that sometimes I have to search to get coverage of it. I, I think when this comes out, some people are going to be surprised. He hired a very aggressive attorney. She's a female. Um, they, they don't let anything go. And as much as many of the accusations against him, it, just to be, and I, I always like to be careful here because then people think like somehow you're defending the person or anything like that. No one is doing that. But you, if, you, if you follow the trial and look what they're putting into play, I, I think his defense, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I, I would take it that they've done a very good job at presenting a version of events that seemingly could undercut a lot of these very serious accusations that have been made against disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. Yes, certainly the defense in this trial has put on a much better defense than, by way of comparison, what happened in Bill Cosby's case. Right. And just to review very quickly with Cosby, he's alleged to have drugged his victims and taken sexual advantage of the victims while they were incapacitated or unconscious. So they could never have consented to what occurred. There was no way they could have consented. Here... With these victims in the Weinstein case, there's the issue of whether they actually did consent and then after the fact decided that, um, um, no, no, I didn't consent, it was really rape. Um, the defense doesn't have to prove he didn't do these things. The defense has to raise a reasonable doubt that the prosecution has proved these things. So he doesn't have to say I wasn't there. He's saying it was all consensual. He's saying, yeah, this all happened, but it was consensual. Now, he didn't testify. He doesn't have to testify. But some of the evidence that the defense put on is rather compelling. One of the victims, I don't recall their names, had a roommate. And the roommate testified for the defense. And the roommate testified that while this um, alleged victim... Um, during the time in question of the alleged rape, um, told this roommate who testified for the defense that Harvey Weinstein had given her the greatest orgasm of her life, right. that's a quote, um, and that she felt that uh, Harvey Weinstein was her life soulmate, 
and continued to go to parties, to continue to meet up with him at different uh, occasions and in different cities, and maintained a very friendly, cordial correspondence in writing via email, cards, letters. So it's hard to put together the fact that there's an allegation that he raped me, and that same person is telling her roommate, somebody you you know that you know you might have sort of intimate, confidential discussions about guys that you're maybe um, having some sort of a um, relationship with. That he's given her great orgasms and he's her soulmate. That, if the jury buys the story, creates reasonable doubt. Now, if the jury thinks that this roommate came in and is full of it and that the story is not credible and that she didn't make a good impression, you know, we, we read things in uh, print. We don't get to see what happened in the courtroom. What did the jury think of her? Did she make a good case? Did she sound credible? Was she evasive? Um, was she direct? Right. Um, a witness like that, it could be devastating for the prosecution. So... In a case like this, do I think he'll be convicted or do I think he'll be acquitted? Based upon what I know, I think it's more likely that it'll be a hung jury because yeah. I think enough of the jurors are going to buy this uh, roommate story that it puts the whole thing into question. And in each case, remember, the allegation is he, he pinned me down. And, and again, whatever he did, I'm not justifying. Understood. 100%. Yep. He pinned me down, he held my arms down, he took advantage of me, we engaged in sex. And at one point I stopped fighting back. And then he uh, proceeded to perform oral sex on the woman. And at that point they could have jumped out of bed, they could have kicked him in the head, they could have done a number of things, and they said, no, I just kind of gave up and laid there and um, didn't know what to do. Now maybe that's a reaction that really happens in the world, and God forbid if that's all what really happened and that's what occurs to a person emotionally and physically under such circumstances maybe it's legit but for folks on the jury who presumably have never been in that situation it seems odd that once you're not being pinned down you don't scramble to get the hell out of there right kick back fight back do something but rather do nothing or uh, a that's lot gonna of be hard I was just going to say, a lot of the, the stuff, Tim, it, listen, he is a sleaze, he he's manipulated, a he's a creep, he used his position of power in Hollywood, um, all of those things. But then when you're watching and then they say, you know, afterwards, you then sent these emails, you then went with him to this event, you, it, it just seems to then blend into... I don't know how else to describe it other than I'm sure regretful actions. I'm sure they feel like I can't believe I was with that guy and he's dirty and gross and horrendous. But he offered to put me in a picture and and maybe remorseful type of sex. But the, there is a difference between that or, you know, then they had people in the stand that said, you know, they saw the person that afternoon or that night and didn't say anything about it, didn't tell anyone about it, still had conversations. One, one of the people who testified it almost seemed you know i met him in the lobby of the hotel and he dragged me up he got a room and dragged me up to the room no wait no wait a minute it's like 10 o'clock in the morning no one dragged you up to a room he may have kept been insisting no 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 and was belligerent well not belligerent but just very aggressive about it but there's a big difference between that and someone that truly is rape sexually assaulted so um you know what else tim is we also don't know how the jury is re is reacting to his 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 defense attorney well it, yes but it sounds like the defense attorney is doing a really good job yes. if yeah. you know just from from a lawyerly position perspective i mean i look at what she's doing and say she's doing a great job for her client whether you like the outcome whether you think he's a sleaze she's doing a good job during her closing and I'm not sure she could have gotten away with it in Rhode Island, but she basically points to one of the victims who's represented by Gloria Allred and says to the jurors, don't be fooled, this victim waited 3,000 days to suddenly claim this was a rape. And don't be fooled, although she hasn't filed civil litigation against Mr. Weinstein, she and her lawyer, Gloria Allred, they see dollar signs, and that's why they're doing this. 
And I think that's, that's a very potent thing to put into the jury's mind, that this is all about money. And if the jury buys that argument, again, that helps to create the reasonable doubt that the defense is trying to create. Um, it seems like he's getting his money's worth in terms of his defense counsel. And just the last thing, when you say you, you, you don't know if that would be allowed in Rhode Island, is this because where it's being heard that maybe the, the judges give them more latitude? Yes, because that that's something that's not in evidence about any monetary expectation. Oh, okay. So to put that into 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 play... When there's been nothing discussed about that, and maybe there has been during that trial, but just to say, listen, this lady's looking for money, and her lawyer back there is looking for money, and this is all about them trying to get money out of Harvey. Um, that could that could result in a mistrial if it's not said in a particular way, and it depends on what came out during the trial. Um, perhaps perhaps these victims were asked, "Are you looking to make money on this?" And if they said no, then it could be fair game. Hmm. Um, but it's a very provocative thing to say, and if it sticks in the jurors' minds, again, reasonable doubt. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a mistrial here. Okay. Folks, good afternoon. It's John DePetro speaking with attorney Tim Dodd. Tim, let's talk about the big local story that has even affected the Biden campaign. And the reason I say that is because there is a, a seated grand jury, which the fact that we know about it, Channel 12 has the cameras outside, um, it, it, that's unusual. You certainly don't hear about that. A lot of times we, we hear rumor of a grand jury, but there is one. It has to do with Speaker Mattiello. It has to do with the convention center. We've even learned that the Biden campaign did not want to disclose, and they basically said, we don't want your endorsement when they put forth a list of people who endorsed him. That's how serious it is. Um, but a couple things. The media keeps asking Nick Mattiello, well, they did ask him yesterday, I should say, have you been subpoenaed? He says no. So a couple of questions. Number one, is that unusual? Uh, number two, um, have you gleaned anything from what we've heard about the grand jury as of yet? And number three, there is something in particular that they are looking at that I sent to you. And from what my sources tell me, that is what they have zeroed in on in this grand jury. So if you wouldn't mind touching a little bit, I mean, to me, it's a little comical for Mattiello when he was asked about it yesterday. The speaker said... Like, oh, I have nothing to do with the grand jury. I don't know why you're asking me. When, by all accounts, he, he seemingly is the target of the, of the grand jury. Um, let's talk about the Mattiello grand jury. Sure. Well, first of all, um, the speaker has not been subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury. That's a true statement. Many times if you're the target, and, you know, you may want to presume that he's the target, and that would be the natural way one would look at this, Many times the target does not get subpoenaed. Many times the target never gets to go in front of the grand jury. I know you've discussed and we've discussed that Buddy Cianci was right. never even given the opportunity no. to appear before the grand jury. And typically you go after the smaller fish and you work your way up the food chain and try to catch the big fish. And in this scenario, Nick Mattiello is certainly the big fish. Um, a couple of the folks who have already testified said, I'm not going to talk about what went on in there. Um, one of the um, witnesses, I think it was Paul McDonald, said, yeah, I told the truth. It seems like this is a big tempest in a teapot trying to downplay uh, the whole situation. It's pretty tough for him to downplay it now since he was one of those who, if, if tr what he says is true, puts the words into Mattiello's mouth about the threat. So... Is it is it an accurate assessment? Is he now trying to downplay it? How did he pitch this in front of the grand jury? We don't really know. But from the get-go, this has appeared to be something... Let, let me just touch up. on the McDonald thing just for a moment, and I apologize. But sure. something that was pointed out to me is, Walt Butow, it's and as you know as an attorney, it's the way you ask the question. The way it was, under, it was put to me was, Paul McDonald outside of the grand jury was asked, did the speaker threaten you? And then he answered, no, he did not threaten me. But what I was told in reality was he never threatened anyone. He threatened if they suspend or fire Jim Demers, you, you tell them I'm going to stick an enema up there behind. Right. So it, it, it's all part of this to me. It's, it's the, 
I don't want to say laziness to seem critical, but what people have to understand is it's, it's the way the question is asked that then, and you know that as an attorney, of how the answer that you're going to get. And that would be a truthful answer. Did he ever threaten me? No, he didn't threaten me. He threatened if, and, and by the way, Paul McDonald has nothing to do with whether his buddy Demers would be suspended or fired or anything. So it's kind of like a don't kill the messenger. But I think it's more the way the question was posed to him by the media was not set up in a way that you could get the type of information you're looking for. Now, go ahead. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but I thought that's sure. important. A couple of things, uh, and we've discussed it before. Um, defense counsel does not get to be present in the grand jury. I think one of your listeners had asked that question Correct. last week. Yep. However, the prosecutors can basically lead the grand jurors around by the nose in how they pose the questions, just as you correctly point out. So the old adage is that a good prosecutor can get the grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. It's, it's a lopsided, one-sided, only showing the cards that you want to show to the grand jury. They never hear about the defense. They never hear about the other side of the story. So let's assume that the grand jury issues a true bill against the speaker. And I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll get to that. Let's assume it does. That doesn't mean he's guilty. That just means the grand jury has been spoon-fed certain information, and based upon what they've been spoon-fed, they issue a true bill. Okay. Now now the defendant gets to fully defend um, during the course of pretrial and trial, if appropriate. Politically, it would be devastating to Nick if that were to occur, but... If there's a true bill that issues, that doesn't mean he's guilty, that doesn't mean he's doomed, that doesn't mean he's going to get disbarred, that doesn't mean he's going to go to jail. It would be a problem for him politically. But we've been looking at this for for weeks, and extortion is the appropriate um, area that everyone is um, zooming in on. If you look at the extortion statute as it exists in Rhode Island... Even if you take everything that you've discussed to be accurate and true, I don't believe any of that conduct satisfies the elements of the extortion statute. And if it's only what you've been suggesting to be true, I'm going to stick an enema up your rear end and all that stuff. If they suspend or fire him, yes. Right. I don't think that satisfies the elements of the extortion statute. And... If the grand jurors are looking at the statute or if they're provided with the statute and you read the language carefully, this conduct, even if true, does not sustain the criminal elements of that statute. Typically, let's, let's compare this not to get sidetracked. Um, but I, I have the, the statute in front of me, Tim Dodd, yeah, and I'm so reading with intent to compel any person to do any act against his or her will. Intent. No, no, no. You're taking it out of context. Go ahead. You're not reading it correctly. All right. I don't want to, I don't want to, bore, I'm not going to read no, no, it. No, 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 but you, you can read it. No, I, I, this is important. Let's, you're let's, not boring us, so let's go right into let's, it. Let's parse the language. Okay. Whoever, whoever verbally or maliciously threatens to accuse another of a crime or offense or maliciously threatens any injury to a person's reputation, property, or financial condition, or threatens to engage in other criminal conduct with the intent, here's the important bit that you didn't read, with the intent to extort money or any unlawful pecuniary advantage. Pecuniary means financial. Okay. Or with the intent to compel the person to do any act against his will. Now, let's assume Nick said... Um, unless, you, well, it, it doesn't make sense under these circumstances. Extortion is, if you don't give me $50,000, I'm going to tell the cops that you robbed that bank last week. That's extortion. Because unless you do something for me, I'm going to have something happen to you criminally. Or... If you don't give me $50,000, I'm going to tell your spouse that you've been out there fooling around with so-and-so. That's extortion. Or if you're Michael Avenatti and you say to Nike, unless you give me $22 million, I'm going to have a press conference and talk about all the um, disreputable things that Nike is doing vis-a-vis team sports. 
that's extortion. But okay. what about intent wait, to wait, compel wait, any person against his or her, her will? The, the, but, the but audit cost $50,000. No, no it's, it still doesn't satisfy it, John, because typically extortion is that the person making the threat has to get some sort of gain by it. So let's assume that the speaker said the words that you've been suggesting. He doesn't get a financial gain. He doesn't get a political gain. He doesn't get anything for his family. Um, he, that, that conduct does not create the criminal violation, in my view. Now, somebody else might read this and differ, but I don't see that that conduct, even if all true. But it says financial uh, condition of another. Yeah. So I order an audit, and you have to pay $50,000. I still don't think it satisfies the elements of the crime. Because okay. what is Nick get, what's Nick getting out of it? I, I don't understand the part where they have to get something no, no. out of it. But. Yeah, no, that's what extortion is. You, if you don't do this, if you don't give me X, then it's going to cost you X. So if you're saying that if you don't keep demurs, you're going to spend money, that's not really how the extortion statute would work. Nick's not getting a personal benefit, or Frank Montanaro, or anyone else who might have been the messengers. There's got to be something that you need, or you're extracting, that unless you extract it, you're going to do or say something that would expose someone's reputation, someone to criminal prosecution, etc. I mean, it sounds good that this is extortion. And the media keeps talking about this. Oh, this is extortion. But if you really parse the words of the statute, even if the grand jury comes back with a true bill, anyone who would be indicted on this would have an excellent defense, based on what we know today. All right. Um, let's move on to um, folks. And again, good afternoon. It's John DePizzo. speak with attorney Tim Dodd, who is the legal expert and attorney. I'm just a layman. Um, Tim, Jesse Smollett is back in the news. This is something that happened last January. He made the fake uh, false allegation, seemingly, uh, that they put a rope over his head, and this is MAGA country, and so forth. And at the time, Kim Fox basically kicked it. But suddenly, lo and behold, Jesse Smollett um, is not out of the woods and seemingly is now facing charges. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's satisfying to think that he's going to get recharged because the way the case was dumped was outrageous. It outraged the police department. It outraged the chief. Um, the DA who cooked up this deal had previously spoken, I think, with Michelle Obama's chief of staff. This was a political fix when they dumped the case. But the case was dumped in exchange for Jesse paying $10,000. And he paid the $10,000, and that's what precipitated the case being dismissed. So to now come back and say, oh, although you paid your ten grand in exchange we dismissed the case, now we're going to bring it back. Uh, Jesse will have a very good defense argument to say you can't do that because we've already gone through this and I've already accepted the disposition that was negotiated. So to bring this thing back criminally in the state court in Illinois, I don't think is going to stand up. And it does seem, for better or for worse, that this all came forward in a very splashy way right before the election for the new DA or for the DA that exists to get re-elected, right? There's a primary, there's some election coming up in Italy, in Chicago, regarding this situation. So it seems well-timed to discredit, um, I think her name is Fox, who's the current DA. Kim Fox, yes. Kim Fox. If anything is going to happen further criminally with Jesse, I think it would have to be based upon a federal prosecution to compare. Uh, back in the days of Rodney King, those cops went on trial in state court. They were acquitted. So the Fed said, oh, we got to come up with something because there's so much unrest. They charged those cops then on a federal statute, and they got their conviction. So if the Feds could come up or if they had the appetite to go after Jesse for you know fabricating a hate crime, or some federal offense that they could charge him with, he could get prosecuted in the federal system. I don't think they can go after and go make him go through another criminal proceeding in state court. 
remembering that there's civil litigation that uh, Chicago has brought against him, seeking, I don't know, like $150,000 for all of the overtime and police expenditures. But this attempt to re-prosecute this criminal case, I don't believe will stand up, unfortunately, because there'd be a lot of satisfaction for a lot of people if it were so, but I don't think it's going to stand up. And folks, finally, uh, this week we saw it, NBC10, I-Team, Parker Gavigan does a story. Attorney says woman should face weapon charges and apparent road rage. Now, this is a story, and it's frightening when you see it, where this family is <clears throat> in line for a CVS drive through For some reason, this woman, uh, who was arrested, believes that somehow, I don't know what it was over, they, they, the Stephanie Dominguez, that, that, that they cut her off, that it was her turn, whatever it may be. And then we watch, they videotape her with their phone. She has a knife in her hand. She's trying to unlock the doors. She is then damaging the car with her knife. Every part of the car was damaged. And you went on NBC10 and said, this woman should face weapon charges. Tim, if you could just background, I, I don't understand why she didn't. And apparently now there has been a reversal. And you were right, because now she is going to face uh, weapons charges in this. Well, it, it's, if any of your listeners haven't seen the video, and I know it's on your... your um, Facebook page, it's yes. Your, it, it's an astonishing thing to look at. The um, deliberateness with which she attacked this vehicle and threatened this family, um, you got to see it to believe it. It's yeah. just something else. Now, the officer who investigated, appropriately in his report wrote it up that she should be charged with disorderly conduct, which is a misdemeanor, and that she should be charged with malicious damage to property, another misdemeanor, and another misdemeanor charge for possession of a knife over three inches. There's a specific Rhode Island statute which says it's unlawful to possess a blade over three inches. Now, apparently, he measured the blade on this knife, and it was six inches. So it's clearly a violation of the statute. So fast forward to the day that she's arraigned. Um, the papers are presented, and there's only two counts, one for maldamage and one for disorderly conduct. The knife charge is nowhere to be found. So inquiries are made to um, the police department, you know, where's the knife charge? The spokesperson said that, that the facts of this case did not meet the appropriate criterion. Well, yes, it did. It, a thousand percent did. Right. No question that this knife was more than three inches, unless the cop doesn't know how to measure, you know, in inches. His report says this was a six-inch knife. So why would the knife charge not have made it into the district court? The police department, I don't think, in a million years would have dropped the knife charge. That's not their role that's not how they operate they write up the crimes and then it's up to the lawyers and the judges and the whole system to figure out which charges stick which should fall and you know which should be tried would the assistant solicitor who goes into court on behalf of providence have unilaterally said you know what Nah, we don't want to have this knife charge i'm going to dump it no way that's going to happen either so it seems to me that somewhere within the administration for the city of Providence, there was a directive from somewhere, and I'm just guessing, but I think it's a pretty educated guess, yeah. that someone put the kibosh on this knife charge. Why? I don't know. I don't know who this woman is who pulled the knife and you know, stabbed the car, but it's inconceivable that the knife charge should have simply been dropped. It should have been charged, and then through pretrial negotiations, maybe it would be dumped. Maybe there'd be some extenuating circumstances. There could have been an issue potentially if the cop obtained the knife um, through a warrantless search, if there was some issue that the knife could be suppressed because it was taken from the um, defendant improperly. But those are things that you charge, and then you wait to see if those um, the evidence that has been garnered by the cops is suppressed or thrown out for any procedural errors. Mm. You don't do it at the arraignment. That's not the appropriate time. Now, I've been seeing reports that it appears she's now going to be charged with felony assault. Felony assault, yeah. Felony assault would now take this entire thing, uh, this entire case and all of these charges 
out of the district court and put the entirety, the felony plus the misdemeanors, into superior court. Um, felony assault is typically when you assault or batter somebody with a dangerous weapon. Now, this knife is a dangerous weapon. Now, she never actually got to make contact physically with the folks in the car. She may well argue, well, listen, there was a door and there was a car window. These people were never in danger because it was obvious I couldn't get to them. I couldn't stab them. There was a barrier between us. However, you can see her in the video yanking on the car door trying yeah. to get it open, smashing it, uh, banging at the window, yes. hoping to break it to, to get through. She was working hard to get at these people physically, and she put them in fear. So is the felony assault charge appropriate? Yes. Will it stand up? Well, that's questionable, but I mm. think it should have been charged in the first place based Kim, upon her conduct. And the video is just devastating. Kim, you tell me, but the, the father sitting there, if he had a licensed firearm, and at that moment, as she is trying to open the doors, he's got his kids in the car, she's got the knife, she's trying to get in, she's hitting you know the car and banging the windows. If he had gotten out and discharged his weapon on her, I mean, I, I think you have a tremendous self-defense case here. And seeing you, I mean, he, well, he was left with no other I, choice then. Well, no, as long as he stayed in the car and she didn't break the window oh, and she I didn't see. open the door, okay. If he now gets out of the car and he leaves a position of safety and then shoots her, I don't think that's appropriate self-defense. Okay, what if she, uh, but if she broke the window then, then maybe different. And starts stabbing in at the, yeah, sure, then if yeah. he shot her, then he'd be okay. Okay, but it's kind of like the old thing that people used to say, that if someone breaks into your house, a robber or a burglar, whatever, and then they're, they're running out, if you shoot them on the front lawn, you're better to put them back on the porch, because then, otherwise, it would seem that they're off your property. Um, so he, if he's sitting there, he would actually have to wait for her to break the window, then he discharges the weapon, then it's self-defense. But her doing that, you're right, as long as he's in the safety of the car, it goes like that. Folks, uh, but Tim, great job at NBC10, and what exactly you said in NBC10, it happened today. They did put in the, um, the felony charge. Folks, he's our legal expert, Tim Dodd. Uh, Tim, great job, and we'll talk to you again. Thanks, John. Take care. All right, folks, there it is. Tim Dodd on the John DePietro Show. This portion of our program is brought to you by K's. Remember, lunch, dinner, drinks in the lounge. Stop by K's. They're waiting for you. 766-1380. If you missed any portion of that, it'll be posted later on DePietro.com. Do you own and operate a small business and you rely on communicating with your employees while they're out in the field? Well, if you do, this is the perfect time to make the switch to T-Mobile for Business. This is Sal with T-Mobile for Business, and I encourage you to reach out to me today at 401-332-0000. This is a perfect time to make the switch to T-Mobile for Business. Right now, we have unlimited plans with unlimited talk, text, and data. With no contract, great deals on iPhones and Samsungs. This is the perfect time to make the switch to T-Mobile for Business. Stop wasting money. Call me for a free consultation at 401-332-0000. Again, 401-332-0000. Stop wasting money with your current cell phone carrier. Call me today, Sal with T-Mobile for Business, 401-332-0000. Hey, folks, remember MEGA Truck and Trailer Repair. Call them today, 508-336-2110. 508-336-2110. MEGA Truck and Trailer Repair. Commercial trailers, diesel equipment, free estimates, FHWA inspections, Rhode Island State Inspection Station, trailer pickup and delivery, 24-hour mobile service, ABS repairs, brakes, doors. Listen, if it's on a trailer, one thing I know is MEGA, M-E-G-A, Truck and Trailer Repair. They can repair it. 508-336-2110, 508-336-2110. It's MEGA Truck and Trailer Repair. I'm on the road and my ride is going strong. At Paul Massey Chevrolet, you get the lowest price guaranteed every day with Rhode Island's only true one price on our exciting lineup of Chevrolets. Paul Massey's one price plus true car equals our best price, guaranteed. And it's only at Paul Massey, Rhode Island's number one Chevrolet dealer. Lease a 2020 Equinox LS front-wheel drive for only $179 a month for 39 months with $29.88 due at signing. My Paul Massey, my Paul Massey ride. 
Legacy Buick GMC South is New England's number one Buick dealer and Rhode Island's number one GMC dealer. Get the lowest price anywhere. Paul Massey's one price plus true car equals our best price. Guaranteed. Lease a 2020 Terrain SLE front wheel drive for only $198 a month for 39 months with $24.88 due at signing. Great selection, top-notch service, and the lowest one price, only at Paul Massey. Have you been thinking about updating your website? Do you have questions about how to get the most out of social media for your business? Would you like a free consultation from a local digital marketing professional who has been doing this work for 23 years? Contact Karen Etchells at Innovast Digital Marketing. Karen will help you better position your brand on the web to engage visitors and get results. She's local and responsive. Call Karen Etchells at 401-321-2799. That's 401-321-2799. Or find Karen on the web at www.innovast.com. He's John D. Petro. I am. He's really in the know. Weekdays. With his talk show. 11 to 2. On your radio. Folks, it's John DePietro. Listen, enjoy this Thursday. Blake Filippi, Rep Filippi, will be on the program tomorrow. Uh, stay tuned. The John Dion program is next. Remember, visit my website, depetro.com. This portion of the program is brought to you by K's. Remember, lunch, dinner, or drinks in the lounge. Stop by K's. They're waiting for you. Make sure you tip Faye. She's right behind the bar. Come to Terry's Tire and Auto Service for a full array of auto repairs, including belts and hoses, brake repair, climate control systems, cooling system, electrical and electronic repairs, engine diagnostics, and exhaust system replacement, just to mention a few. Gill is trained to accurately diagnose auto issues for the first time you bring your car in. And we also have a full line of Cooper tires, but we'll get any other tire brand if that's your preference. Looking for a late model quality pre-owned vehicle? Check out our lot. If you find something, Gill will even and make an evening appointment with you or come in on Saturdays. On-the-spot auto financing available. Yes, it's Terry's Tire and Auto Service, where service on your car purchase is as important as the sale. Open weekdays, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Terry's Tire and Auto Service, 38 Blackstone Street, Woonsocket. Have a question for Gil? Call 766-3270. We are an official Rhode Island Inspection Station 2. WNRI and W236CW Woonsocket, 1380 AM and 95.1 FM.